Welcome to the Principles of Performance podcast, where we discuss how to optimize your health, fitness, and performance. Drawing on decades of experience of working as coaches, consultants, and trainers to top performers, athletes, and teens from professional sports to top universities to the U.S. military, Eric Degatti and Mike Perry discuss topics and strategies of how to perform at your highest level and be your very best. Join us and our friends and colleagues who are leaders in the fitness and performance industry as we investigate and challenge the most popular training, nutrition, lifestyle, and recovery protocols. And away we go. Here we are with episode number 37 of the Principles of Performance podcast. I am your host, Eric Degatti, and I am flying solo today. My co-host and friend, Mike Perry, will not be joining us, being that he is in Boston. And at the time of this recording, Boston is getting crushed with snow. So he's burying, he's trying to dig himself out of about a foot of snow up at Skill of Strength. Um, but he's going to miss a good one here because we have a great guest. We have Luke Bongiorno, and he's a one of the top uh, uh, physical therapists in New York City. He graduated from University of Melbourne and is currently in clinical practice uh, in New York. Um, he's taught advanced skills and manual therapy internationally since 2004, and he's currently the director of the NOI, the NOI group. Um, he has extensive experience in the management of acute and chronic pain and sports injuries and is affiliated in the clinical education programs at Columbia University and Toro College. Uh, he also te- treats a lot of professional athletes, including Olympic athletes, touring uh, performing uh, arts and, and dance company members, as well as a consultant to the NBA and European uh, soccer pro teams. Uh, and he's also the co-founder of New York Sports Medicine, which was later acquired by Orthology. Um, and he's currently involved in clinical research focused on injury management and is developing guidelines for injury prevention and in sports medicine in the workplace. And very excited to have him on here. And, and you'll find out very quickly also has, has one of the coolest accents you'll ever hear. So it makes the <laughs> podcast sound that much better. So Luke, welcome to the show. Thank you, Eric. <laughs> it's good to be on the show. <laughs> so, um, so Luke and I met with uh, a common athlete, a pro athlete that we were working together on. And, uh, you know, immediately I knew that he was taking a, a unique approach to, to, to doing what he does and, and not the traditional physical therapy. And one of the things that stood out, which kind of sparked this conversation is um, how he approaches it from the mental side of things. So, so Luke, if we can start out by talking about, you know, the journey of one of your patients from when they first come to you with an injury all the way up to when they're cleared and good to go. And, Tell us about kind of that intake process, not only in terms of the physical evaluation, but also kind of how do you assess their mental state? That's a great question, Eric. And I mean, at some point, you've got to look at an athlete um, as, a, as a human. I mean, they're, they're humans just like us, um, superhumans and sometimes very well paid. But um, but essentially, the, the process I follow isn't that different um, to a regular person. The issue is, is how do you assess their mental state without actually saying I'm assessing a mental state um, for a couple of reasons. Number one, you know, I'm a, I'm a physical therapist and, and the level of expectation is um, you're here to treat my knee or my back or whatever the injury is. Um, and the second thing is um, they're also, that's their attention of focus. And, you know, I have to really 
choose my words um, wisely and, and ask the right questions to get a state of their, their mental condition. So one of the things I'll generally ask is, you know, once I've got their history, um, I'll just ask about them as a person, um, which sounds really simple and obvious, but it's something that helps connect, you find a connection point, um, which is really important because essentially, I mean, if you've been injured or if anyone's injured, you tend to follow, following that injury, you generally are on guard a little bit or you find yourself protecting. And I think um, that comes across in a lot of ways. They might be less verbal. Um, they might know it, but I'll just ask them, look, how have you felt since the injury? And do you feel like it's actual pain or you're you're moving in a protected way? Um, and that's a way that I can start introducing the concepts of your knee is hurt, the rest of your being, your immune system, your brain is trying to protect you and keep you safe until it figures out what's going on. So rather than thinking about mental part of it and their psychological state, I introduce it through like a neurological connection, say, between your brain and your body part. Very cool. So I know one of the challenges that, that you have to deal with in, in rehab is expectations and what the expectations are. How long is this going to take? Am I going to be back to who I was and those sorts of things? You know, it's funny. I, I wrote a, 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 an article a bunch of years back. It was when Adrian Peterson came back after his ACL. Team. Oh yeah. I remember and, that. And, and, and I said, Adrian Peterson, he screwed up re rehab for every rehab professional for forever because he came back in in just over nine months and, and almost broke the single season rushing record and so now everybody starts thinking well on acl i should be good to go at nine months and i have to explain the difference to uh, you know a high school running back to say one adrian peterson is one of the greatest to ever play as a freak you're not yeah right uh number two is that he had round the clock care from some of the best professionals in the world you're going to the local pt on the corner three times a week, right? There's a big difference between those. And so you can't, you have to temper your expectations to match kind of that protocol and then who you are realistically looking in the mirror, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and Adrian Peterson now, didn't he, did he injure himself like again, not long after? I can't, I'm trying to think. Well, he, the, he, everybody I... looks back at the success he had immediately after coming back after nine months yeah. and said, okay, well, I guess ACLs don't take that long anymore. Yeah, but the thing is, again, this is an example. No discredit to Adrian Peterson. He's a very hard worker. I actually worked a little bit. Um, Orthology used to take care of the Vikings where he was. So I, I learned a little bit about his rehab. But our, our guy Giuseppe did the same thing in, in 2014. Um, he came back after an ACL and was the leading goal scorer in Serie A. Um, now, that that can be great. I think the... The thing is, these guys are incredibly, and you know from Giuseppe, so focused, so engaged, so committed, um, and show up every single day. As you said, it's not just they've got the care around the clock, it's who they are as individuals as well, with you know, incredibly um you know, strong mentally and and overcoming of whatever is placed in front of them. I think for the average person to understand, you know, why is there such a discrepancy between people who get better and people who don't? Well, with regard to ACLs, um, 
you know, that there used to be a term, I don't know if I still use it in, in research, but copers versus non-copers. And that is those that have the ability to overcome the fear associated with re-injury. And, you know, that you, you do that in many ways. One is by, you know, just physically loading it. And two is understanding how to get over that worry that, you know what, I'm still thinking about my knee or I'm still, am I going to get hurt again? And that's that's the difference between, you know, when you can come back and, and how long that path, uh, you know, that, that path takes. So continuing on that theme, since you work with some pretty high level athletes who have a lot at stake regards in regards to their health, how does that impact your thought processes differently? And then how do you manage expectations for them versus the everyday client? Hmm, that's another really good question. My actual thought processes are the same. Now, I should um, acknowledge that I haven't worked exclusively in elite sports. While I have for a you know, at least the last sort of 15 years, that's been more my focus. My traditional focus is regular clinical practice. And as well as orthopedics, I've had background in neurological rehab. So that's people with head injuries and, and things like that. So my thought process and reasoning is still, how do I get essentially this athlete to reconnect to their body part? And by reconnect, what I mean is, get the signaling systems um, and their pathways restored to help them run or jump or score a touchdown or score a goal, whatever they need to do um, without excess thought or overprotection um, of that body part. So when it comes to someone who's, um, you know, they've got multi-million dollars on the line um, and that brings a level of expectation on them, uh, their teams, their coaches, everyone is, you know, when, when can you come back? What's the plan? And the, I think one of the key points or the key points of difference here is to recognize that that is a real or can be a real stressor for the athlete. Just the fact that they've got that value on their head creates a real disconnect. On the one hand, you've got this, superhuman athlete that is worth $20 million a year so that their value and they value themselves as I am the best in the world. I deserve to be this and that. On the other hand, you've got this human being on the inside that's, wait a minute, am I still this athlete? Am I ever going to get back to that? What What is all of these other factors that they're not necessarily going to articulate during a treatment session, but it's absolutely there. And um, they compensate for that in different ways. But I think recognizing that human part of them, and I bring it back to myself, I say, look, if it were me, I mean, I, I have that little voice in my head. Do you have that little voice? And they might say yes or no. So I start to introduce the concepts of them seeing themselves as that human and seeing themselves as the persona of the athlete. So I'll... I'll often, you know, play games with them, which one's winning today or, you know, keeping it light and sort of funny, but trying to extract more information. And that's when the athletes, once they see that you see them as a regular human, um, they're much more likely to open up and give you appropriate information to help 
manage that that fear and everything else accordingly. So let's keep talking about these conversations and, and circle it back to expectations. So tell me a little bit about how we have to handle that that di- difficult discussion of what's your recovery time going to look like? What can you expect when you get back? And then also just as important, here's what I'm going, here's what you can expect from me. And here's what I'm going to expect from you in terms of what I want you to do, as well as what I don't want you to do, which is sometimes even as much of a challenge, especially when you have a type A driven athlete that, that doesn't know how to shut down or wind down real well. Yeah. That, well, they don't know how to shut down and wind down physically. They also don't know how to shut down and wind down mentally. Um, that the biggest difference in the last 10 years is that athletes are more attuned to mental health and even the last sort of major NBA work athlete I worked with asked me specifically, teach me how to meditate, do meditation with me um, because he knew I did, I did that. Um, and it was about his recovery. So the getting back to the, the driven athlete, their expectation is they're going to come here, they're going to work. And the harder they work, the better they're going to get. Um, now, if you were to interview that athlete at the end of their career um, and ask them, well, what would you have done less? And they would have said maybe, you know, less is more sometimes. So that expectation that what are they going to do in the session? So I'm going to work harder. You're going to be with me and you're going to help me and push me um managing that expectation that the harder the challenge for me is to say we have to teach your body more importantly how to recover we need how to how to use every moment and value the time that you have to recover so if you're having an off day we need to use that time wisely and that's something that the athlete's not necessarily used to. So I'll, you know, the adage of, you know, work hard, play hard. You'll say work hard, recover harder and give that equal playing time. Otherwise your muscles aren't going to recover as well. You're not going to fatigue as well. And that can be a hard conversation to have because it's not something that they really want to think about. They, they generally have the adage, I got to work. I got to work harder. I got to be the best. I got to do more. And um, and paying attention to recovery doesn't mean doesn't negate that. It just means you've got to really pay attention to things like breathing. Pay attention to things like you know lifestyle, nutrition, um, which they all know. But I think as a as a physical therapist or any healthcare professional or fitness professional, it's important to at least have a base level of understanding so that you can help um, help treat that patient in a more holistic manner. And I, I personally noticed, and, I, and I, I would, I'm curious to see what you say as far as how that message gets received differently, depending on either the chronological age or just level of maturity of that athlete, right? That's a great question. I like the way you've dis- discerned uh, the chronicle uh, uh, age and the level of maturity and the level of emotional maturity, um, their ability to receive information. And that, look, I think every every practitioner has their own way of, of reading a situation and reading an athlete um, and being on guard. And I think one thing that I want to bring up is recognizing as a uh, for me as a clinician but as the professional 
recognizing your own emotional maturity and ability to handle an oppositional athlete or if you're giving them information how you receive pushback or questioning and first and foremost i think the professional working with them has to be you know the calmer you can be and receive it when um the athlete isn't understanding what you're saying um is really important otherwise you end up with a back and forth and you end up losing that patient's ability to trust um if, if that makes sense so i think with those type a personalities or the the oppositional athlete they might say something like, i might present a bit of information saying oh you know that's interesting i noticed that your hip was a bit off or um something didn't quite go according to plan do you think it's still weak um and they might say yeah but and i'll say to them oh you're a yeah butter i said i'm a yeah butter too i'm a yeah but you sort of accept it or i might do a breathing exercise with them this is another example I'll say every time I hurt my my raise my arm or lift my shoulder, I get pain. And I'll say, all right, let's do a slow breathing exercise, not what they're necessarily used to. How does that feel? And they might say, oh, yeah, it's sort of weird. That feels better. But and, I, and oh yeah, you're a yeah butter. Okay, so it's a nice way to say you have the ability as an athlete to change what you feel, to change how you think. Um, to change how you perceive a situation. And I love the fact that you don't take my word for it. This is what I will tell the athlete. I said, and you shouldn't, because you know your body better than me. I understand the body, but you know your body. So I'm still on, I'm demonstrating to them that I'm on their side, but I'm recognizing the fight and the oppositional nature of them. Um, and I find that no matter what the personality, they'll generally respond to that. Because often they'll agree with you and they're, they're nodding. And I'm like, is that a yes? Is that a, I said, I need a verbal yes. I, I, I challenge them on whether they're actually believing me or buying into me. What are the things that I'm saying? Now, one of the coolest things when buy-in uh, that I found is when it happens, not by accident, but it happens almost by surprise. And what I mean by that, you referred earlier to Giuseppe, who we work with together. And, you know, I remember out of the blue one day, he, he said to me this past year and, and coming back uh, from his latest injury, he said, you know, I think about all that time I spent after my first injury. He said, I was in the gym like eight hours a day. He said, I would do my PT and they would say you're done. And then I go do two hours more and then come back. And, and he said, we we're getting more done with so much less effort and I feel so much better and I'm so much further along. I wish I would have done this back then. And that wasn't by anything I asked or prompted. It was just kind of this, this flash flashbulb moment for him. And it's very cool when to hear them say it without that prompting. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, that's where, that's where the learning occurs. And the, the longer I've practiced, I've now done it for, I guess, over 25 years, the longer I practice that the less I say generally the better. And especially the less explicit, I'll try and feed them information because the goal is for them to learn it on their own. I mean, everyone knows if you make that light bulb moment is when you connect the dots. I put the dots in front of them or you put the dots in front of them and then they connect it. And that's that takes a lot of time and it happens 
when you least expect it sometimes, but that's, they're great moments. I mean, it is. Giuseppe Very was cool. also a learner too. He, he loved learning. He said that sometimes. <laughs> Absolutely. Now, uh, kind of on that theme. So how do we kind of balance what we gather from hard data and from objective testing versus the, the patient's subjective feedback? And so, you know, in a lot of settings, it's always surprising to me when their whole criteria for return activity is just how does it feel? But then on the flip side, there's other ones that, that don't take into consideration that type of things. And it's just purely based on what my goniometer says, what my force plate says. So how do we kind of blend those two to the art of what we do? A really great question. I think, I think develop also more tests. So athletes, as you know, are really good at tests that they know. They learn how to, I mean, I shouldn't say this, Giuseppe, I hope he doesn't mind, but you know, <laughs> He liked to, he, he performed really exceptionally well on tests. They're clever and, and they can not trick the data. The data is the data, but they, that, that doesn't necessarily correlate to how safe they are in return to sport. And one of the questions is, all right, how do you feel? Um, but do you have any fear? And they might say no. And I'll say, do you trust it? Um, do you trust that knee yeah i trust it i said 100 percent, and you'll see their initial response and if they pause and i'll say yeah i'll say i don't believe you i said to me is it 80 percent, 90 percent?" and i keep challenging so i challenge them on what they feel so i'm not i'm not denying what they feel but i will ask follow-up questions to challenge them on really being honest with themselves in how they feel and then correlating that with the data. Well, that kind of leads into what my next question was in terms of like, we have these, you know, objective uh, musculoskeletal outcome measures to kind of signify when someone's ready to, to return to activity, return to play, but about psychologically knowing when they truly are ready is kind of that other magical question. Yeah. There, there, there's a, there's a fairly well, well, widely used um, outcome measures tool called the psychological readiness for a return to sport. Um, and it basically asks a series, I think it's five questions for the athlete. Um, how much time do you spend thinking about your injury? Do you think you can play um, uh, without getting injured? Like different criteria. So I'll get them to fill it out because that's an objective test. But then they'll often take them through uh, visualizations. Um, give them even worst case scenarios. I'll challenge them. I'll challenge them physically. I'll do perturbations. I'll get them, I'll surprise them a little bit and then start to put them in, in situations um, to see if they're ready. Because, I mean, you, you can rehab something and, and someone and do all follow, follow protocols and guidelines, but until they actually get back on the field, um they they don't really know a hundred percent and it's it, once they get that confidence back that's that takes time that I, I often say uh, the last part of rehab is the first three months of return to play and the, the the reason I do that is not to say you're not quite ready to play but to to get them to keep thinking that you know what I'm still going to get better and I've still got more to go and keeping them in the game and helping that as a transition. 
Yeah, and and I'll bring up another kind of cool moment we had uh, with Giuseppe coming back off of his his uh, knee injury is that along the way, and, I, and you know about this, he had kind of a really silly ankle injury um, that he had. Oh, yeah. And so that became the primary focus and kind of diverted the attention away for, for about a week or two. And so we got to a point where we're doing some field work and he said, you know, the ankle feels good. It's the first time I haven't really felt it. And it was bringing to his attention. I said, you know what you haven't talked about? And I, and I said, I actually tracked it. You know, what I mean? you have not mentioned in, in four weeks. He goes, no, I said, your knee. He said, you haven't even mentioned your knee. Like the fact that you just forgot about it. He's like, oh yeah. Like I forgot, like that's why we originally started this whole thing. And so that was a cool moment for him to realize like, wow, that's how far I've come where every day he used to wake up with that concern of where is it going to be today? Yeah. And that's, um, I remember when he, when he first came back, this is in 2013, was it 2013, 2013? Yeah. Um, March of 2013, we were doing some drills at New Jersey it was the first time he's on the pitch and his rib hurt, like his left rib. And he's like, yeah, it's just, I said, maybe it's your, your cardio. I said, what about your knee? Oh, my knee's fine. So, you know, the body's pretty amazing. It, it gives signals to other parts. It's not just your knee. And I think that's actually not a bad thing when, when they start to feel things in other areas. I'm like, well, this is actually a good sign. Um, so, yeah, that's no, it's pretty cool. Hey, everybody, a quick break in the action here. Hope you're enjoying the show and we appreciate you listening. We're working hard to bring you the highest quality content and best guests every single week. So if you could do us a big favor and go and like and subscribe to the show on whatever platform you get your podcasts on, it would be greatly appreciated. Be sure to listen at the end of the show also to find out where you can find out more information about our courses, as well as a special discount code for all our listeners. Thanks again, and let's get back to the show. Something you mentioned earlier that I want to also circle back to is that once someone is injured, there's always that level of fear, doubt, anxiety moving forward that, hey, this could happen again in the back of their mind. So we can rationally explain to them that they're healthy and that they're good and that they've passed all the tests and they're stronger than they were before and they're they're more functional than they were before. But uh, getting them to trust themselves is a whole nother story. Yes. Um, and, uh, you know, I think I said before, but once once you've been injured, you can never go back to never having been injured. Like it's a very, very, very difficult thing. And you could say it, you can uh, rationalize it. You know, I'm going to be back to better than I was, but you can never go back and you can never unlearn the, the neural pathways. Once you've had an injury, you actually have pathways that are there to, to serve and protect you um, that, almost go into a protective phase before you get, before you move into a similar position again. And you, you've really got to work hard to override um, the overprotection um, that happens. And so, so to get them to really trust again, I, I that's when, as they're doing an activity, I'll cue different body parts. So if it's their knee, I'll say, push down through your left foot. Now pull open your back and do isometric exercise and get them to almost do a whole body scan with different cues to get them to incorporate the whole body. And that works really well if you're dealing with an athlete that works in a team. 
because I, I recently had a girl, she was training for the Moroccan um, national team. She sprained her ankle and she's a striker. So I said, well, who, who would your hamstring be? What person on the team would be? Or where does the ball come out of? It comes out of the center. So I get them to start to rewire and fire the, the, the muscles and the nerves um, around that body part. And that way they start to say, I trust my ankle. Then I trust my knee. I trust my hip. I trust my back. I trust my heart. I trust my head. So you start to build the trust as essentially you, you're working toward, I trust myself and my ability to play again. That's awesome stuff. So uh, there's something you said earlier that, that I, I wanted to come back to because I think it's a key word in this is identity. Um, you know, people will, especially athletes, uh, they'll take on certain labels, whether it's given to them or they take it on themselves. One of the big ones being injury prone, right? Um, so how much of someone's resiliency uh, is dependent on their capacity to kind of own their own personal identity? Hmm. It's look, it's, that's a really, it's an interesting question and a good one. You know, their identity as an athlete is um, one of the best in the world. They've usually anyone working in elite elite um, or playing in at that elite level was all have come from being the best in their club or their town or wherever it is. And they suddenly in an environment where they still need to believe that, that they're their best. And if they have been injured, that label usually comes from other people, the media, it could come from coaches. Oh yeah, he was great, but he never reached his potential because he was always getting injured. And that's the, hearing it over and over again is really hard. And the athlete, and this is, I credit Giuseppe on this. He would always use that as fuel to sort of denounce the critics. Like I'm never going to give up. I'm not going to give up. And then also the athlete that questions, well, why is it when every time I'm coming back to that, you know, I'm really feeling good, I get hurt again. Why is that? And they start to reflect. And, and the astute athlete that maybe has had one or two, more than one injury or, or two injuries can really reflect and look at their behaviors and start to be more aware and pay attention to other things that might happen. Um, so that uh, might've happened prior to or around the time of that injury, because that's, again, going back to humans and how we're wired, they're wired to protect. The, the brain makes associations with last time you were here, we better put the brakes on, I protect you. And that's when you might be caught off guard or put yourself in a position that, you can't get out of it. Another really good example recently, um, Kevin Durant, I don't treat him, but, um, you know, he was going down on his, um, moving away from the, the basket um, and trying to bring his weight onto his left Achilles. Now, rather than actually load fully onto that Achilles, rather than come down, he sort of, stayed on his right side and Jimmy Butler was falling and fell on his right knee. Now I'm not saying that could have been prevented, but had he really said, Oh, wait a minute, I haven't really fully retrained that pattern or in a stressful situation, my 
neurological system has overridden my ability to load that tendon because it wants to protect it. And therefore, I haven't been able to get out of the way in time. So these are all very split second subconscious things that your brain and central nervous system are making all these decisions, even when you're not conscious. But the athlete that can recognize that and say, you know what, I'm really going to work harder on that. And I'm going to put myself in those myself in those situations. They can help to override um, those protective mechanisms. And in, in neuroscience, we call it updating their predictive model or upgrading their software so that instead of saying every time I go on my left knee, I'm likely to get hurt is, all right, every time I'm loading my left leg, it's going to build back stronger. And then I'm going to maneuver my body to challenge themselves in a different way. That's how these athletes can get past that hump. Now on the flip side, you you could also run into the situation I would imagine where part of what makes these athletes great is that they don't back down from situations. And if, if you're the best, you're one of the best, you're going up against the best in the world and to not have that fear in the competitive model now is going to translate over to where they're, they kind of have to fake it till they make it. Sometimes they have to overcome that. And that false sense of confidence, if that can carry over into the rehab can also be a dangerous thing. Absolutely. They, they can kind of say, oh, I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. And have them pump the brakes and understand, well, you're not good to where you think you are just yet. Let's stay in the guardrails here. Yeah. I mean, I generally, yeah, I try to avoid, I mean, it sounds a little bit new age, but I try and avoid sort of negative language. Like you're not, I said, let's, let's try and be more honest because your body is really powerful and it, it's even more powerful than the ego. It will, the body, you know, that, that's the, the body wins every time and the body doesn't lie. Um, something's got to give and you can fake it, but your body knows when you're fatigued, your body knows when you're not loading in an appropriate manner, you can't fake that and you will get hurt. Now I'll sometimes say that, but I'll get them to do a test, say with their eyes closed. One of the ones I do is I'll get them to stand with their eyes closed and march in place. Often if they're turning or their body's rotating without knowing it, their proprioception might be a little bit off. So while your eyes are really, you've got really good eyes, got really good hand-eye coordination, foot-eye coordination, you're using them probably a little more than you should. How about we work a bit more at this to get your body more astute, smarter, and, and that? Because you have to, you cannot overemphasize um, the importance of those little drills, proprioceptive exercises, um, neural stretching, like even uh, eye tracking, um, the, all of those things. I said, you're an athlete. If you were a Formula One car, you'd be pulled apart at the end of every race and not just the wheels and the obvious bits, but the intricate little bits. I said everything from your senses. I, I, even with an athlete the other day, I had him, he's an NFL player, and I pulled a little um, uh, a metronome and uh, just with my phone and I had him uh, listen to a sound. It was just a very, um, you know, banal uh, metronome sound, like a tick. And I had it on the left side of his um, ear as he was walking, just like that. And then the right side. And what was really interesting is as I walked away, his, his ability to hear it on that side was a lot better than the ability to hear on the right side. 
He said, that's really weird. I always catch better from this side. I said, well, while you're here, he was there for his foot. While you're here, how about we retrain your central nervous system and practice it? I said, how do you get something? I said, your eye's still working, isn't it? He said, yeah. I said, how do we get it better? We practice it. Now, he didn't come in for me to treat his eye. I've known this player for a couple of years now, so we, we have a good rapport. But he put together, oh, yeah, I catch better from that side. I notice when I'm seeing it from there. So I'm like, well, how about we practice? I said, we're not going to change what you're best at, but we're going to augment the other side. So when you get back, you know, your version 2.0 or 3.0. So those are those are little tricks. Again, it's not being negative. It's saying, well, you know, you're great. You can be even greater. You, you've learned really well how to work in patterns. You've got a hell of a lot more in the bank that you don't even know about yet. And that's, that's something really powerful that an athlete can hear that also motivates them to say, you know what? Yeah, I can do things a little differently. And that's neuroplasticity. That's rewiring of their nervous system that can get them back um, to, to where they were and kill those expectations on them that they're going to get hurt again. Very cool stuff. And then, so I'm going to take it to that same point now since we talk a lot about elite athletes for for the average person uh one of the things i always that stood out to me is one of my mentors greg cook would talk about um the difference in when you talk about like in the fms scoring someone who moves really well versus doesn't he said we have some populations talking about their psyche where they they actually move better than they think but they have this fear and avoidance of movement um, that's not great. We don't want people to be scared to move, but that's better than the opposite where you have the people who don't move well, but think they do. Um, and the common, uh, archetype of that, I always joke is, you know, I'm going to date myself here, but is the Al Bundy of the world, right? If you remember, mm -hmm. there's a show married with children. There's a guy who always used to talk about how he scored four touchdowns in the state championship 30 years ago, that guy who's in his forties, fifties, who thinks they're still that former 20 year old, 18 year old self who now goes to the gym, who now goes to play pickup soccer or basketball and thinks they're that still that same organism. And they're just blowing out their, their Achilles and shoulders and knees all over the place. Cause they have this overconfidence in their current state of, of wellness and, and readiness. And so if we can then just finish up by talking about the, the average person and <laughs> that, that level of confidence and where they're at and how they actually hit the mark. So they're not scared to move, but they're also not overconfident in what they're doing. I can, I can relate to that, you know, training for a marathon now at 48 uh, compared with when I was now compared with when I was 38, I still think that I can bounce back after getting off a plane and just go for a run and things, but the recovery time is longer and you just gotta, you gotta pay attention um, to it, don't you? So for, for the average person, uh, I would suggest um, you challenge yourself. But again, that's where I would say spend as much time recovering. Learn how to recover. Learn how to feel your body. And by feeling your body, paying attention to all the different parts and raising your awareness. So as far as when I'm translating that to exercise, I'll say do more isometrics and hold positions for a couple of minutes. That's when you'll start to see where your weaknesses are. I said, because if you keep training um, 
as you've been training, the strong muscles get stronger and the weak muscles get weaker. It's the same thing with an athlete. So let's find that weakness, train it, so that when you get older, you can also get body wiser. Um, and it sort of ties in a little bit about you know the story with the athlete before, but that's what I, I would call out to that overconfident athlete. Well, we all have a weakness, don't we? Um, let's find it and train it so that you you are that you've got backup in the event of. Yeah, and and to to one last point is is because recovery has become its own business right at this point is getting people sure. to understand what you're talking about recovery is not beat the hell out of myself in some hit workout and then just you know sit there with a massage gun uh for the next two hours to undo it just to do it again um you're just kind of putting a, a band-aid on a gaping wound is what you're talking about is is kind of overall mental physical physiological state and managing that um, not in a in much, not in so much a reactive, but a proactive way. Correct. Absolutely. And, and recognizing that recovery starts right off the bat. Now, even if you're playing NBA basketball, you might have a couple of plays focusing on exhalation, lowering your heart rate down, preparing for the next shot. That's active recovery. When after you finish a game, doing some slowing your breathing rate down, that's sort of turning your engines off, getting your body calmer and starting the recovery process sooner right after a game. It's the last thing an athlete wants to do when they're done with the game, but just doing those simple little things, um, that, that's what I mean by recovery. Um, and they're things that don't cost any money, um, which, is, which is hard. It's hard to get players to buy into something that's free and that involves just work on their behalf. <laughs> yeah, no, and I, I've taken that to heart myself and in, in, in with, uh, with the recovery stuff and kind of took that from Dr. Andy Galpin talking about your, your recovery starts right after your last set and a workout. So every one of my workouts is going to finish up with at least two minutes of some sort of reset type of breathing and if we can combine that with some mobility work great just so you're not you're, you're not just finishing a, a set and heaving in your breath at a max heart rate and then throwing your keys on your finger and going out the door and kind of having that that model of hey whatever heart rate you came in at i want to have you go out at that or lower and squeeze as much work as we can in between efficiently and effectively yeah yeah no i agree with that so um, can't thank you enough, man. This has been great. So really enjoy all the stuff you're doing. And, and obviously you're involved in a, in a lot of different things. Kind of give us a little bit of a lowdown on uh, what you got working on for, for 2023 and beyond, Luke. Um, well, it sort of feels like, you know, that movie, Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. I sort of feel like that's my life at the moment. I've got, uh, NOI Group is based in Australia. So we're a, um, a, a re, uh, uh an education-based company for healthcare professionals. So we run courses um, here in the US and also in Australia. So we've got um, some exciting new courses coming out. We also publish books there. Um, I'm working on with NOI Group, uh, NOI Group, developing curriculums. So as well as you, you can talk about the science and you can do the research with the science, but the key is to get that science translated into digestible content for an average human or an athlete. So we've been working really hard on that. Um, I'm working with the NBA at the moment with the league on creating a document to help combine this um, uh, mental, physical, 
um, well-being, like a holistic approach. So we call it the each uh, approach. It's evidence-based, um, athlete-centered. So you, you're acknowledging their uh, emotions as well as you know giving them the information they need. Um, culturally informed, recognizing cultural differences between people and holistic. So that's a really exciting project at the moment with the MBA. Um, uh, what else is going on there? Oh, yeah, just with um, working with some universities on getting pain science education into the curriculums, um, not only for PTs, um, but also doctors, because I think as a wider community as health professionals, the better aligned we are at messaging around pain science, the quicker we can work together to help our athletes recover and get them back um, playing and playing confidently um, with without unnecessary fear or catastrophization. So that's a, a very a challenge and a work in progress, but um, you know, I'm, I'm still excited about it. <laughs> Well, there's there's not a, a minute unused in, in your schedule. Like I know that we're <laughs> just trying to trying to to get get us uh, with our schedules aligned for this alone. So can't thank you enough uh, again. And we're gonna uh, post links up so you can check out all the stuff Luke's working on uh, in the show notes. So be sure to check that out. And want to thank you, the listener, for tuning in. And this has been the Principles of Performance podcast. Thanks so much, Eric. Thank you for listening to the Principles of Performance podcast. If you've enjoyed our content, please like and share on your social media outlets as well as subscribe and give us a review on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, or whatever your preferred platform is to listen to. For more information on the Principles of Program Design courses and workshops, visit us at www.principlesofprogramdesign.com and follow us on all of the social media channels where we post new content every day. To save 10% on any PPD courses, enter the discount code PRINCIPLESPODCAST10 at checkout. If you have any questions we can answer or suggestions for the show, you can email us at info at principlesofprogramdesign.com or message us on social media. Thank you again for your support.